0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, the number one value investing podcast in the world, sitting next to the co-founder of the number one value investing podcast in the world, Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. Hey, if this is first time you're tuning in on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up, and then of course, a rating and review goes a very long way on the podcast side of things. If you like the work we're doing here um, and you want to support us and you want to use the same website that Jeff and I use religiously every single day, go to QuickFS net you could pull historical financials you could pull models on companies it's a, a great website we use it all the time um, and if you do sign up it's 35 bucks a month there will be a survey at the end and you could click the button that says that you heard about QuickFS from focus compounding help support everything that we are doing um, in today's podcast what we did earlier was jeff sent me over a bunch of different topics of things to go over and one of them was how the hell do you read a 10k the second one was rule of 240 how to work backwards from a future 10 bagger uh today's to today's stock price. this is, That's based off of a conversation we had mm-hmm. the other day. We were on a little road trip visiting a company. Um, the third one, coffee can portfolio. What really happens if you buy just one stock a year and hold it forever? And then the last one was investing during high inflation. Which stocks work best and which stocks work worst? Um, and we put this up on Twitter, at Focus Compound. And I ran a little bit of a poll. And from all the comments, Um, Apparently we have to go through every single topic, every single one. So uh, be on the lookout for future ones if you're interested in these topics. Um, But today we're gonna be talking about the coffee can portfolio. What really happens if you just buy one stock a year and hold it forever? And this topic was talked
1: about in a hundred baggers. Was it also talked about you I'm just see you holding the book. It is a hundred to, to one in the stock market and one hundred baggers. One hundred baggers is kind of a reworking of hundred to one in the stock I market. I loved hundred baggers. The updated
0: one? Yeah. 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 Mm. It was it's an easy read. It's a fun read. Mm. And if I read it a couple years ago. So if my memory mm. correctly, not getting it mixed up with a different book, they pretty much um, you know, did case studies on past companies mm. that have gone from one 200 right 100 X mm-hmm. essentially uh, and uh, returns and try to reverse engineer see you know the certain qualities that these companies had and if there's any way you know you could take anything away uh, and implement it in your
1: vesting process so maybe explain the coffee can portfolio okay. first so the coffee can portfolio idea is you buy a stock and then once you've bought that stock you put it away that you don't um, sell it. And the idea, uh, actually we can talk about it maybe in a future episode or something in more detail about exactly where that idea comes from, whatever, but the idea as far as what we'll be talking about here is that you buy a stock and then you don't sell it. And the most common reason why this happens, and it's talked about a little bit in um, 100 baggers, is uh, one, it can happen because someone has a brokerage account where they just don't sell things. Mm-hmm. So that was an example in there is that they, uh, actually it's an example from, uh, the original book, 101 in the stock market, which is written 71 or 72, sometime like that. Um, that they had taken the advice of a brokerage firm about a client on what to buy and then just ignored all their sell recommendations forever and <laughs> did quite a bit better than, than other, you know, uh, people had. And so the question was why did that happen? So, um, and, of course, it creates a very unusual portfolio. Uh, and, and that's kind of what I want to get into, which is that it. Uh, there's also a book, um, Fortune's Formula, which talks a little about Claude Shannon and how he invested. And he ends up in a very similar way because he's not selling things. So, like, if he owns HP or something, he doesn't sell it. And it gets to be a very big part of his portfolio. Uh,
0: Joe Greenblatt actually talked about a study a fidelity study that was ran where, um, you know, which brokerage accounts had like the highest returns. I think majority of the people were dead. So people yeah. that did not sell, did not make changes within their portfolio. So on uh, one end, they weren't buying new stuff, but they weren't selling as well.
1: Yeah, I do know that for, at one point, some of the best magic formula stuff was the one where they were ignoring. The yeah. Sell. yeah.
0: Uh-huh. So coffee can portfolio, so sort of the buy it and forget it, take the stock certificates, stick it in the y- coffee can type thing under your bed? I think that's well, what they actually talk about well, in 100 Baggers. One
1: example, of real, a really good example, is um, that someone who was uh, saving quite a bit, uh, the way in which he did it is he actually literally took physical uh, delivery of all the certificates. So because he did had physical certificates um, and would just put them in a safe deposit, um, for that reason, he was never selling them. Mm-hmm. And that was the way that he was able to do it. Mm-hmm. So what are, I guess,
0: from your readings on you know 101 in the stock market, 100 baggers, what are some of the qualities
1: that all these companies have in common of oh, these 100 baggers? Yeah, so a few interesting things. One is industry seems to be very important. So we talked about, at one point, we owned uh, Computer Services, which is a core processor. And it's the fourth largest core processor. The three larger ones have all been 100 baggers. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Computer Services, too, if you went back all the way to the 60s or whatever, pretty uh, if. Not a 100bagger, which it may have been, um, is similar to those, uh, and all of those paid dividends too. But um, so all of those did. Uh, there are some interesting ones by industry, too. One of the fascinating ones in the 1970s book is that um, way better than even automobiles and airlines and things that you might expect is uh, paper companies did really well. I think one reason for that is it started that book starts with them in the '30s, and also at the time paper companies owned their own timberland. Oh really and so I think that was a bit because there's inflation later in that period and stuff it was a big part of the recovery so they were cheap because of you know depression stuff so they generally don't have very high PE ratios so that's the one thing that's important the whole way through they get very high P-Ratios later. And this we can give an example from an actual 100-plus bagger that I owned and sold, uh, which is what we were discussing before, mm-hmm. which you were like, how much would that company be? I had all of my net worth when I was a teenager in one stock. This was 20 years ago. <laughs> and um, Andrew asked how, how much would be worth today, and I said about $1.6 million. And uh, I didn't save that much money in high school, obviously, but that's what it would be because the stocks returned about 100 uh, about 160 times. Yeah, um, <laughs> I asked him I was like is that painful every time you just check the market capitalization and do the math on that So uh, so that's about a 28% return for about 20 years um, So the reason for that is a few things one right industry so it's video games, right? So this is Activision Activision Blizzard um, Two. It started, and here's the really big shocking part, when I bought it, and also then when I upped my buy into it so that I put all of my uh, money into it, uh, it actually was trading when you backed out cash at less than one time sales. Okay. It probably was seven times sales or something. Do now. you remember like the growth rates on revenue? I mean like what, there had to have been something they were, else that you, I mean why did you think it was a good business if you could go back to high school? Sure. So one thing is electronic arts at that time probably had already been a hundred bagger. So the bigger company in that mm-hmm. industry. Um, I was studying Electronic Arts and I liked the management a lot better of Activision. And this gets to the capital allocation thing. So I didn't think Electronic Arts was that good in terms of capital allocation, or they weren't that good in terms of what they were talking about at the time, their management, and the management of Activision was. And that actually turned out to pay off a lot because why it turned into a 100-bagger um, is because it did a big merger. And then it also, after the merger and stuff, bought back a lot of stock when it then couldn't do big mergers and stuff. So it's basically based in large part on two things, buying Blizzard, merging with Blizzard, and then um, also then when you couldn't do something like that, buying back your own stock heavily and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so those two things were a big part of it. Um, And that has to do with the management. So capital allocation is very important at these companies that turn into hundred baggers, but they all tend to start this way, which is when you look at these things in, in 100 to one in the stock market especially, uh, it tends to be stocks that had fairly normal PE ratios, like a 10 or something, Mm -hmm. and then it turns into 50. And if we go to the thing that I like more, which is, we'll talk about on a different episode and stuff, which is uh, an order of magnitude move. I think it's much more useful to do that. So I actually think 10 baggers are a more useful concept than 100 baggers. For one reason, if you think about it, take a 100 bagger and try to do another 100 bagger on top of it, it's almost impossible. Mm It's not quite impossible obviously activision if it was up a hundred times or something could be on par with like a well no it's still too big but something smaller than activision could be a hundred bagger and could be if you used like apple or something it could reach that size. sure so you can do a hundred baggers twice if you start as a micro cap it's Possible if you start as one of the smallest companies public companies around and you end up as one of the biggest But more likely is one order of magnitude move which is more common and can happen plenty of times in 15 20 25 years for plenty of companies What was the market cap of Activision? Was it a microcap? cap? That's hundred million Okay, um, I don't remember if it was 300 million or, or hundred million, Got but it. in that neighborhood,
0: so we have industry so an in industry where there's been some sort of you know, other companies that have been 100 baggers. Right? So you are talking about core processors, CSVI, sure. the other three uh, largest core processors have all been 100 baggers and you know, possibly CSVI mm-hmm. as well. Um, Activision, so EA Sports was a 100 bagger. Right. All right, So we have
1: uh, industry and then we have um, management. So capital management allocation is very important. important. sort of like outsiders. The two things that seem to be important, we were talking about this on the car ride that we took, um, that seem to be really important are capital allocation and cost uh, cutting. So it's a very low cost. So the two things that managers seem to have a lot of control over, and they're often founders and, and owner operators and stuff, is um, they can direct capital allocation, sort of like that book, The Outsiders. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing they can do is they can enforce much, uh, more cost discipline throughout the company than you'll see at other um, firms in the, in the same group and stuff. And and both of those things are very helpful. Mm-hmm. And it's often a founder that does that. So I wonder, did the actual business model of any of these companies
0: change from all these hundred baggers that sure. you Sure.
1: So some of them changed dramatically during that time. So um, as an example of Activision, it changes from being... Uh, a mix of things early on, but PC being important to it, and physical things, and a lot of sales of the initial game into something that becomes much more subscription related mm-hmm. and stuff. World of Warcraft, Call of Duty, things like
0: that. Mm-hmm. So I remember from 101 in the stock market, mm-hmm. and and return. Or I'm sorry, in 100 baggers as well was the focus on return of as a capital, return on equity. Right. So
1: what are your thoughts on that when it relates to 100 that's, baggers? That's the most important part. So the most important part is that you have to be able to um, reinvest mm-hmm. at high rates of return, but it's important. They're not actually, they don't have to be very high rates of return. So we talked about something like uh, Stella Jones or something, mm-hmm. which is only maybe a 15% return on equity or something like that. Return capital might even be a little bit lower. These little debt, um, that's about all you need. Cause if we look at, um, if we look at the one order of magnitude move, okay. So being a 10 bagger, you can actually achieve that by retaining all of your earnings. And then in about 15 to 16 years, if you grow at about 15 to 16%, that's your return on equity, um, you will uh, increase tenfold. And so you just have to do that twice. So if you buy a stock, now we talk about acquisition, where that's a 20 year thing, it goes up over hundred times, but to more like 30 times. And in these books, sometimes they, uh, 30 years, and sometimes they talk about these t- things taking 40 years. It's very possible to have a stock go up 100 times in 30 or 40 years, if it just keeps reinvesting 100% of its earnings at about a 15% return. And uh, I think much beyond that, it's not so important. So I don't think that an obsession about return on equity and stuff like they have a thirty percent return on equity versus a fifteen. If you had a completely steady fifteen, that would be fine. And reinvesting it all. Most companies, their problem is they just can't reinvest it all. So you can find plenty of banks that can return fifteen percent, but they would have to pay out dividends of between one third and two thirds of their earnings. So they can only increase book value by five to ten percent a year. You know, because when you pay out. The dividend obviously now you're you have a higher return on equity. Right. I mean, plenty of companies have, have the same the on return it. on equity as Berkshire Hathaway has. They mm-hmm. just haven't retained all their earnings for all those years. I wonder how many people automatically disqualify
0: a company as fifteen percent return on equity not being high. Yeah. Um, when you're looking at a lot of these compounder type companies right. that a lot of people like to talk about, yes, the return on equities are you know north of twenty percent, sometimes mm-hmm. even like twenty five, thirty percent. Just yeah,
1: incredibly high. Yeah. And those work faster. Mm-hmm. So if you look, the, you know, updated to the modern day, some companies have become 100 baggers faster um, than they did in the past. I don't know if that's the most important thing, you know? Mm-hmm. One of the fastest ones that they mention in the 100 in the, um, uh, baggers is uh, Monster. Mm. So Monster yeah, is one of the fastest, and um, I think my guess is that their actual return on capital for most of those years was a fifty percent, like by wow. my calculation of what their free cash flow divided by their net tangible assets was and stuff. And that doesn't seem to be particular to them because we were actually talking about Celsius, um, and my mm. the economics of Celsius and Monster right look the same to me. I don't think Celsius will be a hundred bagger; they'll turn into Monster. But I'm just saying if you look at the same point in their like very early on and stuff and yeah. what the product economics are they just look the same to me mm-hmm. and there's some accounting differences but they just look exactly the same to me which is that on a like a marginal uh, profit contribution basis you can get about a 50 percent return it doesn't take much capital to run that mm-hmm. kind of business yeah you know? so we have so industry
0: management reinvestment opportunities and also within that reinvestment opportunities
1: is you know a pretty steady return on equity yeah well, what about return on invested capital what have they have that Sure, so that's a good question. Um, it seems to be return on invested capital is the most important, but eh, you can do return equity. There are some in, in the book that are uh, railroads, so the railroads that survive. Um, during a high, period of high inflation, you actually get utilities. So that might surprise some people, but you get hundred baggers in utilities because they're regulated and they're allowed to return in basically real terms. Um, so in those cases, you would be able to use a lot of um, uh, your return on equity. Even a water company or something could be a hundred bagger if you had incredibly high inflation, mm-hmm. you know, it would be possible. Do any of those companies pay out dividends, or did they just retain everything and pretty much reinvest it? Um, some of them do pay dividends. Utilities and railroads and stuff do pay dividends. Mm-hmm. But in general, you have very high rates of reinvestment. But to give an example of the, um, the, uh, the industry thing, uh, so Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Dr. Pepper, and RC Cola all show up as 100 baggers. Really. Yeah. <laughs> so, and not only that, but it's, it's interesting is that some companies that merge into them sure. end up that way too. So mm-hmm. for instance, um, uh, I was reading the, um, uh the davis dynasty book right and it's interesting because he ends up as a shareholder in aig and in berkshire hathaway Mm -hmm. but he doesn't actually go out and buy those companies it's just that aig ended up creating four or five different hundred baggers Mm -hmm. because it merged with companies by giving them stock just like berkshire eventually merged with general re which actually i think was a hundred bagger before berkshire merged with them um by giving them stock Mm mm-hmm so which industries, then, would you focus on for people to look for the,
0: <laughs> the favorite 10? Uh, and should you even seek out 100 baggers, right? Is that even? No, right? you should probably look for the 10 baggers I think and then hope that the you go 10 from baggers. 10 to 100. I you think know? you should look for the 10 baggers
1: because I think it makes more sense. And we
0: talked about this last time. You're like, if, look, if a company <laughs> gets from 1 to 10, it's got a, great, a good chance potentially to go from 10 to 100 Right. as opposed from going from 1 to 100, right? The
1: way you look at it, it's a little bit different. Right. Um, which industries would you focus on? So that's a very good example, because I, Activision was mostly industry. Mm-hmm. I thought it was incredibly cheap for the industry it was in because, and this is um, 20, this is hard for people to believe today, but 20 years ago, video games were seen as somewhat faddish. And the value put on a video game company was actually not that impressive compared to a music publishing company, hmm. a, a movie distributor, so like a movie studio, or like a book publisher, things like that. And fundamentally, it's the same business. Yeah, sure. It's just, you can just look at them and see, it's the same business as music publishing, a movie, you can call it movie publishing uh, studios, and book publishing. And those were valued much higher. So what happened with Activision, which happens with all these companies in the 100 baggers, is basically sales grow at a decent rate. Which is what? It could be 10%, it could be less. Okay. Uh, profits grow even faster than the sales because there's operating leverage, right? And then on top of that, you have this big aspect of the um, the multiple expansion. And so you get this three-way thing. We talked about a Davis double play before. This is really a triple play in which you have um, sales don't grow as fast as earnings and earnings don't grow as fast as the stock price. Mm-hmm. And so, that makes it very easy. That's why I talk about things like the rule of 240 or 72 or whatever you want to use. It makes it very easy when you have multiple factors in there to break it down into mm-hmm. because like using the 10 to one example, I invested in other companies at around the same time as Activision that never became Hunterbaggers. hundred but J and J snack foods and village supermarket. J and J snack foods was a food company, which was selling at about 11 times PE and like constantly 11 times PE. It wasn't just one day. Mm-hmm. Um, food companies were revalued to be, you know, like, 30 times or something. Right. Um, the supermarket invest in that at like five or six times P mm-hmm. so all that has to do is go to a P of like 18, you know, 15 to 18 or whatever, based on the numbers I just said. So like triple, that makes it very easy for it to go up 10 times Mm -hmm. because actually the earnings don't have to go up that much. And again, that's this case where the margins expand more than the sales. So you can have sales growth of like 5% or 4% or something and actually end up with a 10 bagger, you won't have a 100 bagger, but you can have a 10 bagger if the PE multiple triples and if the margin doubles or triples or something like that. So but how do you come to this decision of selling?
0: So village supermarkets, for example, Mm -hmm. or J&J snack foods, those haven't been 100 baggers? Correct. Um, and selling is, I wonder if your opinion on selling has changed. Uh-huh. Um, you know, like, do you think you should look for these companies where you can, you know, really hold it forever? Um, and at what point do you sell those forever companies? You know, for example, like J and J and village supermarkets, you're up 10 X on it. How do you make the decision to sell that? That's kind of hard, right? How are, how do you know that's not the inevitable? 100 bagger and what's the difference between those two stocks versus Activision which actually became a 100 bagger? Did the story change?
1: What do you think? Uh, There was way more growth prospects with something like Activision and there was also higher returns on capital because there was lower needs for assets. But I think um, well honestly my suggestion to people doing this not as professionals is really to have a coffee can portfolio. Mm -hmm. Whenever possible to buy a stock and never sell it. Um, And then forget that you own it basically when you go to the next year to buy another stock And the reason why I suggest that is because uh, I don't think they have the time to evaluate these things again I think it's very hard for them to I think if you're Say you're a businessman or you're a doctor or whatever. I think that with a lot of effort You can identify one of these companies. That's very attractive study it in depth and buy it initially Mm -hmm. but reversing yourself on that decision is very very hard to do And it gets into quantitative things about whether you should reverse yourself. Like for instance, should you reverse yourself on Activision? Uh, For the last double or quadruple of it, maybe. It's pretty expensive, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's hard for it to get those kinds of returns again. I mean, we'll we'll never get 100-bagger type of returns, but even to match some of the other stocks that are more boring. Mm -hmm. um, But yeah, you would have sold out before then. But the advantage that you have is obviously avoiding all sorts of things with taxes and other things like that. and also um if you don't think of your portfolio as a portfolio so if you don't mind that it could drop 50 percent, and this is the issue that with the coffee can portfolio what you have to do to apply the coffee can portfolio approach is not look at your results quarterly or annually in terms of your own portfolio but to think of each investment on its own mm-hmm. so like a venture capital type approach you know what i mean mm-hmm. so the problem with why people would Sell out of why they sell out something like Activision or even some of these other companies very quickly is because they would get to be too big a part of the portfolio. Mm. So the volatility in them would now become very disturbing because what would happen is, um, to give you an example is if you have one stock that's gone up, I mean this is pretty obvious, but if you have one stock that's gone up 100 times, another that's gone up 10 times, the one that's gone up a hundred times is now the majority of your portfolio. Sure. Yeah. So people can't stand the volatility in it. Even though in a sense, most people, I would say in the way they save, might it's maybe easier for them instead of like, some people might get an inheritance or whatever, right? Or you might sell a house and downsize to another house or whatever. But for a lot of people, it's like if they're saving $10,000 a year on average, yeah. it's coming in at about $10,000 a year. So you can put in individual stocks and let those stocks run as opposed to selling them and then recycling them back into other stocks, which can be tough. Because imagine you sold the Activision thing. What are you going to find? And now you're risking that on something you don't know so well. Sure. What about adding to the investment? Or is that really like a one and done? That's a very good question. Um, Thank you. I'm good at it. I think think it's a good approach to buy it once and leave it be uh, for a coffee can portfolio. Now, I think it might be appropriate for some people to have the coffee can portfolio be a small, not necessarily a small part, but be only part of what they do. And that you try to avoid the idea of the stuff that you buy more on a value basis or a short-term thing or whatever and also if you're holding bonds or things like that um as opposed to the things that you're trying to buy and then just leave uh so i think that you don't want to fool around with that though if you're if you're really committing to it for a permanent type thing like as if it's a private investment but i think it's appropriate for people to i think m- most of the time it's very hard to actually find a coffee can portfolio stock and so it makes sense to buy other things And so there might be part of your portfolio that you do turn over and stuff. And part that you say, this goes away. Even to the point of like the holding stock certificate physically, that's a very easy way to say, I'm dividing this into two separate things or holding in different accounts or whatever mm-hmm. to say okay this is the stuff i'm making the investment forever in and then this is the stuff that i'm doing until i can find another forever investment so you think of it like from an asset allocation standpoint yeah well berkshire hathaway is only talking about permanent investments uh like actual permanent investments I don't know how many five six seven of them like at one time in eighty seven or s- around then he had like three of them that he mentioned Buffett he's owned other stocks throughout that time well most of the most of his returns have come from how many stocks right
0: not a lot yeah right? like what 10? Right.
1: maybe I mean, I don't know more than that but not uh, all the I'd say most of his returns have come from about if you look at their twelve deals yeah. or so, about one every three years or something yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so um, so things like Geico and stuff had Geico, he, he did Cap Cities, he did Coca-Cola, some things like that where he said they were basically permanent. The Washington Post had been. Um, but he still was doing arbitrage things when he bought General Dynamics or something and even decided it wasn't arbitrage but to stick with it. He never said that was a permanent investment. And, uh, and he was pretty diversified at times in the 70s and stuff. So there were lots of things where he said it's not permanent. Um, but that's different. a lot of cases, it was like a relationship type thing where he had more of a relationship with management and things like that. But there were some where he said it's basically the same as when we own a, a company completely. So what about the concentration levels then? If you're going to structure your portfolio
0: from like that por- point of view, right? Of being like, right. okay, you have this buy-in, you know, looking at your, you know, a hundred years from now versus this little bit
1: more of an active approach, if you will. Right. How do you structure that? Uh... So my thing on this is different. I think um, if you're going to do a coffee can portfolio, you can't worry about uh, diversification that way. You can't. So, but it's also worth thinking about if you had bought and held Activision and now are worried that it's going to for 20 years, and now are worried that you're going to lose half the money in it, you have to understand that if you do lose half the money in it, it's still more than you have in any other investment that you made 20 years ago. Sure. So the question is whether you want to focus on accomplishing your financial goals or do you want to focus on like preserving what you have? And I think most people want to focus on preserving what they have, which gets into the portfolio approach to it and all those things about volatility mm-hmm. and loss and stuff. And if you do that, then I think you can't do a coffee can portfolio. Got it. But it's a good approach, I think, for individuals. Well, I, I think the easiest one to think of is Warren Buffett he does not think of his portfolio as a portfolio he, no, he just not look through the, earnings and just, everything yeah. yeah and he just makes the investment and then he keeps them mm-hmm. you know and decides what the how the investment did he never i mean they do show it so that you can do the calculation but he never really says we have 30 percent of our market value in washington post or we have five percent or whatever mm-hmm. he just buys as much washington post as he can or as much geico and then he just holds on to it mm-hmm. yeah cool
0: well i want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with jeff and myself 1.7 million 1.7, uh, really? 1.6. Well, oh, yeah, but who's well, got depends yeah. on what it's, it's <laughs> today, I guess. Uh, Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. And probably, if, if we're at 1.6, we wouldn't have to say, hey, if you like <laughs> the work that we're doing here, you want to support us, you want to sign up for QuickFS.net, uh, make sure you tell them that you came for FocusCupon.com. Help support everything that we are doing. If you're listening on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up, and then, of course, a rating and review goes a very long way for us. Views are up. The engagement is up. It's a lot of fun. And I wanna thank everybody so much for tuning in and we will see you in the next podcast.